Hey friends, Nina here. A bit of housekeeping before we dig into the story. In addition to producing Already Gone, you can now hear me as the host of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law and Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. You can look for weekly episodes of They Walk Among America starting in August of 2022. And this week's episode, you may think, hey, I know this story. I watched the Unsolved Mysteries episode, The Lady in the Lake, back in fall of 2020. Well, yes, it is the same story, but we have new details, frustrating revelations, and throughout the episode, we'll be hearing from Joanne's daughter, Michelle. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Joanne Matuk Romain was the backbone of her family, and she was adored by her friends. Her passions in life were taking care of her children and hosting dinner parties for her friends at her home where she would cook wonderful meals. Joanne was 55 years old. She had lived in the Gross Point area her entire life and had strong ties to the community. She was a devout Catholic and would attend services several times a week. Joanne was the last person you'd think would go missing. But on the evening of January 12, 2010, that's what happened. Joanne had given her son a ride home. Then she went to fill up her car with gas before going to a prayer service at St. Paul-on-the-Lake Catholic Church. Joanne was dressed in a black blouse, black pants, and black boots with four-inch heels. And it was cold that night, January in Michigan. It was 12 degrees, and there was snow and ice on the ground. According to police reports, she left the church when the services concluded, walked across four lanes of traffic, scaled a tall, steep, concrete barrier wall with rebar sticking out of it. Then she walked the length of two football fields through icy cold water of Lake St. Clair, while wearing her spike-heeled boots, to complete suicide. Seventy days later, her body would be found by two fishermen 35 miles up the Detroit River on Bablo Island in Canada. Joanne's family believes she was murdered. In an interview with Karen Drew of WDIV, the local NBC affiliate, when asked about her mother completing suicide, Joanne's daughter Kelly would say, Not my mom. She hated water. Joanne's daughter Michelle would also say, My mom was the most cautious person in the world. There would be no way that she would go into the lake. While police reports would state that she was depressed and paranoid, her doctors would disagree. One doctor, a psychiatrist, said that she was not taking any medication for mental illness and that no mental illness was diagnosed. Another doctor would state that Joanne's strong Catholic faith and her dedication to her family would mitigate any thoughts of suicide that she might have. On the night she disappeared, Lieutenant Rogers of the Gross Point Farms Police would see Joanne's car parked in the driveway of the church that evening. At 8.58 p.m., he ran the plates on the car because it was the only one in the lot and the church was dark. 
And listeners, the gross points are not a high crime area. So them running a plate on a car that's been sitting there for a while does not surprise me. The lieutenant would later say he didn't see any footprints leading to the lake, and he took no further action with the vehicle. Officer Keith Colombo would see the car an hour later. He ran the plates at 9.58 p.m. He would later say that he saw footprints about 75 feet away, across the street, and headed toward the lake. He said he didn't see any prints returning from the lake. This led him to believe that someone had gone into the icy water. Meanwhile, Kelly and Michelle got home from having dinner out around 9 p.m. They noticed that their mother wasn't home, so they called her but got no answer. They thought that possibly the church service had run late and Joanne had her phone off, but as time went by, they started to worry. Their mother always told her girls where she was going, especially if she was going to be out late. Michelle saw a car approaching the house and thought that Joanne had come home, but then a police officer knocked on the door. Kelly happened to look at her watch. She said it was 9.24 p.m. when the officer arrived. This officer asked Michelle if her mother was missing. He said that her car had been found in the church parking lot and there was a search going on for Joanne. Now, the car had only been in the parking lot for two hours when police decided that Joanne had completed suicide by walking into Lake St. Clair. But no one had reported Joanne missing. And the car she was driving, the car that was at the church where the plates were run, this car was registered to Michelle. They wouldn't have known to be looking for Joanne. How could they know she was driving her daughter's vehicle? This officer told Michelle and Kelly to stay home and wait, but the sisters chose to go to the church with Joanne's brother, John, to see what was going on. And when they arrived at the church, they were surprised to find an active crime scene investigation and search and rescue efforts in full swing. Law enforcement was searching the lake for Joanne. This was one of the most extensive searches the area had ever seen. The water search would last for three days, but they would not find the missing woman. Later, one of the rescuers would say that she should have been found right there. There was no current, the water was clear, they had helicopters and searchlights. Joanne's remains should have been there. He doubted that she entered the lake at that location. In fact, many people who have investigated this case have said that Joanne did not go into the water at the church. And this is where we begin to question the investigation into Joanne's disappearance. Police reports vary, times are confused, evidence goes missing or was never properly processed or cannot be explained. Coast Guard records say they were contacted by police at 9.30. They launched the search at 9.38 and the search began at 9.51. Now, police files have the times written an hour later. Police records indicate they arrived at Joanne's residence at 10.24 and that the Coast Guard was contacted at 10.30. They did investigate the scene. The vehicle that Joanne was driving was dusted for prints, but the dusting wasn't done properly, so no usable prints were found. Joanne's purse, which was on the front seat of her car, they didn't dust it for prints, and no DNA samples were taken from the car or the purse. 
Police did note that Joanne's purse was torn, but all of her belongings, except her keys and her cell phone, were found inside. They even found $1,500 cash in her wallet. Witnesses would later come forward to report what they had seen. Several people saw Joanne at the prayer service about 7.05. One witness saw Joanne in the parking lot at 7.20. Another heard the car alarm on Joanne's vehicle go off about a minute later. Another witness left the church around 7.30, and this witness said there were no cars in the parking lot when they left, meaning Joanne's car wasn't there. It was 7.50 p.m. when the last person left the church. This was a woman who was nervous because it was dark and no one was around, so she was on high alert. She spotted a man running down the road rather strangely. She said the man was wearing a light jacket and a black scarf. This black scarf would be found in the road later on. And the scarf would be taken into evidence, but would inexplicably end up donated to Goodwill. As word of Joanne's disappearance made the news, a man named Paul Hawk came forward to give a statement about what he saw that night. He said he was driving down the road in front of the church when he saw two cars parked illegally on the roadway. He noticed a woman sitting on the break wall of the lake. She was slumped over and not moving. Two men were standing by the vehicles. As Hawk approached, one of the men motioned him through. Hawk would later identify this man as Tim Matuk. But Paul Hawk would be discredited as a witness, and his testimony would be thrown out. Hawk was discredited because at first, he thought the man who waved him on was John Matuk. He would later realize that it was Tim Matuk. When Joanne's body was found almost three months later, she was fully clothed. All of her clothing was intact with no rips or tears. Her shoes, the spike-heeled black boots, were not scuffed or torn. Her jacket was zipped up to her neck and her car keys were zipped inside of her jacket pocket. But her cell phone and her rosary were never found. Her children would point out that Joanne never zipped her jacket all the way up to her neck. That was just not something that she did. And listeners, if she walked through the water out to where it was deep enough for her to float away, wouldn't her spike-heeled boots be scraped and damaged from brushing up against rocks and debris on the bottom of the lake? Just something to think about. So, the car keys that were zipped up in her pocket, this is kind of strange. You see, when Joanne's vehicle was found, Gross Point Farms police had a spare set of her car keys. And this spare set of keys went missing weeks earlier, but somehow the local police department located them? Here's Joanne's daughter, Michelle. But they had the missing spare set of keys the day after she disappeared at their department. Somebody please explain that to us. When we asked the police department, how did you get these keys? Amnesia. I have no idea. When an autopsy was performed, Joanne's cause of death was dry drowning. This means she had no water in her lungs. That said, dry drowning would make her body buoyant so she would have floated on the water rather than sinking to the bottom of the lake. Buoyancy should have made it easier to find her during the initial search efforts. And make a note of the fact that Joanne's cause of death remains undetermined. And her case remains open, although the Gross Point Farms Police Department seems convinced that her death was a suicide. But if it wasn't a suicide, what would make this wonderful woman a target of murder? Several things were happening with her family. There was a dispute over an inheritance that her parents left Joanne and her siblings when they passed away. 
Joanne and her brother John had sued the other siblings because they didn't believe the money had been distributed evenly. They won the lawsuit, but it caused a rift among the siblings. Joanne also had a falling out with her cousin, Tim Matuk. She believed that Tim was causing problems for her brother John. Joanne tried to mitigate the issues between the two, but they couldn't reach a peaceable resolution. You see, John had been involved in several failed business dealings that led him to trouble over the years. Joanne felt that Tim was making life harder for John, who was just trying to get back on his feet. Joanne had an argument with Tim a few days before her death. It ended with her turning to her daughters and saying, if anything ever happens to me, look to Tim. And at the time of Joanne's disappearance, Tim worked as a police officer. On the night she went missing, Tim had an alibi. He states he was on surveillance and could not leave that detail. His phone records show that he was in Warren, Michigan, several miles away, when Joanne went missing. But no one saw Tim on surveillance that night, and all communication between him and the other team members was done by radio. Some people think that Tim left the detail that night and killed his cousin Joanne. It's also been theorized that Joanne found herself involved in something sinister. A few weeks before her death, she had a meeting with the FBI. But no one knows what the meeting was about. And the FBI? Well, they will neither confirm nor deny this meeting. Joanne was obviously afraid of something or someone before she died. She told her daughters that she was being followed and that her mail was being tampered with. She wouldn't tell anyone what was going on, but she was fearful. She worried that something would happen to her. And she was afraid of her cousin Tim in particular. She told Kelly and Michelle that Tim had threatened her during one of their conversations. Joanne said Tim told her that he could make her disappear and she would never be found. Tim would later deny making any threats. Law enforcement in the points view this case as at a standstill. Without new information, they won't investigate further. Whereas Joanne's loved ones feel there is plenty of information out there, enough to move a case forward. But law enforcement doesn't see it that way. And when I spoke to Michelle, I was going to suggest that the family ask the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office to investigate, to dig into the case where police have not. But there's a big problem with this idea. Tim Matuk retired from law enforcement, and he took a job with the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office as an investigator, making it unlikely that the family would get any support from the prosecutor's office. Joanne's children and family want answers to the questions that have plagued them for 12 years. Michelle misses the warmth, love, and comfort that Joanne gave. All she ever did was go to church and cook, Michelle said in an interview with Local 4 News. And Kelly feels that her mother had a very strong spirit. She says that she still feels Joanne around her. Michael, he's devastated. He wants justice for his mother. And John, her brother, saw her as a mentor and a protector. He keeps a rosary that she gave him close at hand. But none of them will stop until they find the truth. There is a $100,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest of the person responsible for Joanne's murder. Now we have a brief interview with Joanne's daughter, Michelle. I will caution you that the sound quality is iffy the first couple of minutes, but it improves, and Michelle has a lot to say about her mother's case, as well as things that have changed in the two years since The Lady in the Lake was featured on Unsolved Mysteries. We came to find that they didn't even run the plate on the car until 30 minutes 
after they showed up at our house. So somebody already knew that was my mom's car. My mom was driving that car to come to our house to make it look like they were doing their due diligence. But in reality, they had come to the house before they ran the license plate or even found the vehicle. And that in itself is alarming. If it doesn't make any sense, they came to your house and asked if your mom was missing, but she was driving your car. Correct. And they hadn't even run the license plate yet. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense at all. The only sense it makes is that they knew about it and they were in on it. Any expert that's reviewed this case says this is more than ignorance or incompetence. This is a cover-up. This is an intentional derelict of duty. Why is the question. And you can speculate, um, you know, what could have possibly occurred or if there's something illegal going on between the, the cousin cop and the police department. There's speculation of that occurring. Um, but what we do know and what the facts uncover is that this was an intentional derelict of duty, that this was intentionally covered up. They intentionally did not investigate the number one suspect, which is Tim Matuk. And because of that, and because of them ruining the crime scene upon their um, arrival on the scene, there's there's no evidence to support one way or the, the other. There's more evidence supporting foul play with the witnesses and things that have been uncovered in the case, of course, but there's nothing to identify or go with the police's theory of suicide. You have her doctor saying this woman would never commit suicide. She had no mental health issues. You have the police saying this lady had mental health issues and tremendous suicide. Well, where'd you get that information? Then, you know, we have records indicating that these cops were talking to the number one suspect off the record for hundreds of minutes while my mom was missing and after her body was recovered, but they never investigated him. So you're talking to the number one suspect and feeding him information or collaborating, but refusing to investigate him. So what does that tell us? What does that tell the public? Um, it raises a lot of questions. Very sinister situation. In the last year, didn't one of the main witnesses pass away? Yeah. So one of the main witnesses passed away um, very unexpectedly. He was a healthy 55-year-old male, um, and he was found dead in his home. Um, to be honest with you, we don't know what his cause of death is. Um it's really undetermined at this time. Which is very strange. Well, what I can tell you is that this witness was extremely fearful of the local police department in which he lived and resided um, because of the, the pushback he was getting for being the witness. He had multiple 
incidences where cops would just be intimidating him sitting in front of his house. One time they had a SWAT training in front of his house, which on a residential street, SWAT training in front of a, a witness's home, totally inappropriate. And there's pictures to indicate that that actually occurred. So he was fearful for his life, you know, and, you know, we're, we're very saddened, you know, by his loss. He was a stand-up guy and you know he put his neck out knowing that there was corruption in this case and he stood by what he saw and his word for all these years and he also lived in the gross point area yes he lived in gross point farm and is that who if they were pursuing the case that's who has jurisdiction is gross point farms correct You've also had support from some of the Detroit area media personalities like Karen Drew and Scott Bernstein. Yeah, so both Karen Drew and Scott Bernstein uh, dug into this case very thoroughly. Scott Bernstein did a very, very thorough write-up. I'm sure you have seen it. And Karen Drew did a very, very well-detailed documentary, which she actually wanted to some awards for. It just details the things that were really left out of Netflix, of Unsolved Mysteries, because that kind of just gave you the the very basics of the case. Yes, it Karen was, it was Drew, a thumbnail sketch. Yeah. Karen Drew and Scott Bernstein really dug deep and gave you intricate details of really what was going on and how shady this case truly is. Um, And I think that they both did a great job of illuminating that and making the public realize there's way more to this than what the police have been saying all these days. What is the current status of your mom's case? Open but inactive. So ostensibly, if they got new information, if someone came forward, they they would re-examine what they have and and address the new evidence. That's what they're saying. But realistically, after going through all the reports and Scott Bernstein's reporting and Karen Drew's reporting and the witnesses that have come forward, there's plenty of evidence to, to move on. They've just chose not to. Which is why you still have to do interviews and talk with people and do your best to keep the word out about the case and hopefully bring out some new information. Correct. And I mean, there's so much evidence that attorneys have come to us and said, we've actually tried criminal cases with less evidence than your case has and have people convicted in prison. But nobody is trying this case. What is going on? And that's frustrating. You know, you have an eyewitness that puts Tim Matuk at the scene, identifies him with 100% certainty. Now that eyewitness is dead, his affidavit is there. He's sworn under oath. He's testified. That doesn't change, but nobody is doing anything about it. And and this cousin cop, who we are certain is involved in this murder, is just walking free with a badge, with a gun. I think everyone should be fearful of that. How can listeners help you or help your mother's case? Just getting the awareness out, letting the public know the truth, just pushing it. You know, I think the more people that know about it, the more people become um, 
you know, just horrified by the fact that this could actually happen, that there's this much evidence and nobody's willing to pursue it, nobody's willing to prosecute it, nobody's willing to do anything. I think that's the the scariest part of this case. It is really distressing to know how much information is out there, how much evidence is out there, and it's just sitting on somebody's desk or probably right. in a file cabinet. Did I see that you had a petition? Yes. So I created a petition, and the goal is, after so many signatures, to present it to the Attorney General's office and um, the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C., to make them have to do something. Because after so many people sign it, they, they have no choice but to answer to the people. So that's the, the ultimate goal. You know, we're hoping that that could potentially make some movement on top of, you know, outlets like yourself that, you know, continue to spread the awareness. And where can people find the petition if they would like to add their name? So if they go to Justice for Joanne, the two Romaine, they can go to change.org and type in Justice for Joanne, the two Romaine, and it will pop up there. They can also go to the Facebook page, Justice for Joanne, the two Romaine. And the link is attached to the Facebook. Okay. And I'll see about getting that link put in the show notes so that it's real easy for people to find if they would like to lend their support. From the get-go, we knew that there was a cover-up in this case. And the reason being is the cops came to my house at 930 and asked if my mom was missing. And it was my car that she was driving. It was registered to me. So Wait. even if you were to on the plate on the car you would never have come back to her. It would have been looking for me, not my mom. This is an intentional derelict of duty. They're purposely not investigating it. There's enough evidence to convict somebody, and yet they're not touching it. Nobody's touching it. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.